Hello, and welcome to another edition of Tarvalon Talks. I'm Diana, and I'm joined by all of our hosts. And today we are continuing our Wheel of Time on Prime rewatch episodes with discussions about episode six of Amazon's The Wheel of Time. I'm Senya. And you know who I am, right? You should at this point. I don't know. Do we, Thad? Maybe. Just maybe. All right. Episode seven or six. What are we talking about? Episode six, The Flame of Tarvalon. Oh, yes. The Flame of Tarvalon. Quite the flame indeed. Should we start with the cold open? With Young Swan, whose first line of dialogue is a fish pun, just starting strong on the Swan characterization. There's no other way to introduce Swan. Fish guts, obviously. The only thing better if it had been a, some kind of swear. <laughs> <laughs> Even as a baby. That would have been interesting considering she's probably 12? I think 10. You don't think she started wearing early as much as she swears? Oh, she totally could have. There's a production shot somewhere on the Amazon X-ray that was a picture of her with older Swan, and they had a piece of paper hanging above all of their chairs, and I think one of them said 10-year-old Swan, which was the young actress that played that Swan, so 10 or 12. Yeah, I don't think that would stop her from swearing. True. No, no, because she does say bastards, right? True, true. It was a very interesting way of like sort of setting up her background and showing where she came from and... The way she had to, to leave her life behind, which is so sad. Why, why couldn't her dad go with her? He could get on the boat. Did they say why he didn't have his hand? Because that was the setup for her channeling was the fact that he didn't have his hand so that she would help him with the fishnet. I don't think they explain why, but I don't think they need to. No, they really don't. I only bring it up because I like how leading out into them being in the boat, you only ever see him using his right hand and then you see him fiddling with the fishnet single-handedly and then, you know, it pans down to his arm and that's where she channels. And then we get the nice thing of, hey, you shouldn't do that. We're alone, right? You shouldn't be doing that. Also great world building to show that not everywhere in the world is accepting of channeling. They made it very clear very quickly that Tyr is not accepting of channelers. Because on that shot as well, we get the nice zoom out and you see the stone of Tyr off in the distance. And I feel like this kind of reinforces Leandrin's point in the last episode about power and who wields it in a very subtle way. It just is an extension of that world building. It also works really well as an allegory for... A queer woman in the world not being accepted and not being able to be herself in her hometown and having to go somewhere else. I think it's fitting for what we learn later on about her relationship with Maureen. It kind of works as an allegory. Yeah, absolutely. We also get to see our first dragon tear in this uh, cold open because we didn't get it in the first episode with the wine spring in. So we got it here instead. The lambs in the or the sheep in the first episode are in the shape of a dragon's fang, but it's not quite as obvious as it is here. Well, yeah, with it being etched on a door and the house being burned down. I mean, I think here it's very intentional that these are people who did this. Whereas in that first episode, it's kind of uncertain. Like, is it Trollocs? We don't know. I can't remember if we saw it anywhere else, but I think you're right. This is the first time it's been scrawled on something as graffiti. Specifically on somebody's door. I think technically the blood of the Trolloc in the cold open of two, or maybe it's three, forms into a tear. I think it's episode three that that happens. Yeah, I think that also is supposed to form a dragon's fang, but that's also like related to a dark one's creature and is sort of quote unquote naturally occurring. So this is the first, definitely the first like man-made graffiti version. Yeah. So we get to see Swan leave for the White Tower begrudgingly, very begrudgingly. And I love that they established that like she comes from super humble beginnings 
a really poor family and like a single dad. And then we immediately cut to like Swan in the tower, in the hall, in all her glory. And you just like see how far this woman has come and like how she was intelligent, but like now she's super powerful and is so such a great like just quick snippet, but great character building. And we get the incredible hall scene. Oh, the scene in the hall is so good. And Sophie Okonedo does a fantastic job at Swan. I love her as Swan. She's so perfect. Everyone in this scene is acting their hearts out. I liked how when they pulled Loghain in for his trial, quote unquote trial, particularly goes into a very assertive would probably be the wrong word, but he goes into a very aggressive mode calling out all of the sisters and how they're nothing outside of the tower, basically, because he has been gentled at this point. Swan makes note that he's been gentled and she's like, your tricks to get me to just kill you are not going to work here. And then he immediately breaks down and he's like, please just, just end it. And this goes back to a previous conversation in another episode where Tom is talking to Rand about his nephew Owen, about how once he was gentled, he lost all purpose in living and just ended it. And Logan wants that here and they won't give it to him. I have more I could say about that, but it's a, a little spoilery, so I'm going to hold off on it. Yeah, I, I have an idea on where you're going with that. So, And then once they remove Loghain, then she goes into, you know, like, Leandrin, you did not do the right thing. There will be a penance that you will have to do for this. And Alana defends her. And Moiraine's face when Alana is defending Leandrin is one of my favorite Rosamund Pike faces. <laughs> it's great. It's such a like, what are you talking? What is happening? Like, she looks so confused. Excuse me? <laughs> so good. And Moiraine also is like, okay, I guess we're all defending Leandrin now. So let's defend Leandrin. And that is not good enough for Leandrin because then she completely throws Moiraine under the bus for not talking about Nynaeve. Moiraine says that she's unaware that Nynaeve could channel, which means it must be true. She point blank says so. This is my first question for this episode, because how is that possible? I think that that's Maureen skirting the truth. She doesn't know Nynaeve can channel because she hasn't seen her channel. She suspects that she can channel because she can feel how powerful she is. But she doesn't say that she doesn't know. She says she's unaware. If she is unaware that she can channel, it'd be one thing to be like, I didn't know that she could channel. But to say I'm unaware when she knows that Nynaeve can listen to the wind and Egwene can also listen to the wind and she must think because Egwene can listen to the wind, Egwene can channel. It's just a weird dialogue choice. I think that that means that because Nynaeve's channeling was so large, almost explosive, like I feel that that means that she was unaware that Nynaeve had channeled before. Up until that point. Up until that point, yeah. And now she thinks that she probably has been channeling. I think you're right. I think it was a little bit of a careful wording on her part. She was unaware that she had abilities beyond like just the ability to possibly channel or what little she could do as a wisdom. She was beyond the age they generally let women into the tower. So if she hadn't had the spontaneous channeling at that point, she probably wasn't going to because she wouldn't have survived it outside the tower. At least that's what I said I believe until Nynaeve. Nynaeve is not the only woman in the world that learned to channel on her own. But I said, I don't believe that. And so Maureen didn't realize she could actually channel and not just had the ability to, which is what I read it. In. Okay, I accept that. It's one of those lines where I was like, what? But the rest of the like dialogue in this part is great. Like it 
establishes a bunch of Aes like norms and customs, that it's taboo to bring up of Amarlin's former Aja, which Leandrin does. She's such a petulant child. It's like, oh, is this, is, are you, is Megan saying that this is blue business and the Amarlin's letting it slide because she was once a blue? It's like, oh my God, Leandrin. <laughs> I almost feel like that this is like, speculative fan fiction written by somebody because if that went down in the tower in the books they would have just smacked the shit out of her she was completely out of line in that yeah she would definitely have gone to the mistress of novices for for a battling for sure can you imagine if sherem had heard her say something like that she wouldn't have been able to sit for a month <laughs> swan also brings up moiraine's background as a way of shaming her and does it like that does a really good job of establishing that like Bringing up an Aes Sedai's background is super shameful too and should not be done, especially if that Aes Sedai is very rich and powerful and from a former noble family. That was Swan that did that, right? Yeah, to shame Moiraine when Moiraine refuses to tell her why Moiraine was gone for so long. And then Moiraine just bowing down and scraping the floor. Yeah, just oh, everything in that scene. So good. The dynamic of that whole relationship, we can talk about it when we get to the the next scene there's, when they're alone. But there's so much between like the power dynamic of the Amerlin and an Aes Sedai and then what happens when they're behind closed doors. Yeah, so once the hall gets released after that, I love how they're all standing outside the halls, just kind of throwing insults at each other like a bunch of high schoolers. Like the cafeteria throwdown in the high school musical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's even food because Maxim gives Alana a pear in that scene. He has got that pear prepared as soon as that door opens on like a black handkerchief. She doesn't even look as she just picks it up either. No, that's, he is a good warner. I mean, you know, sitting in the hall probably makes you hungry. Maybe they had to skip lunch. Especially if you're getting yelled at for like <laughs> 45 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> or he could sense her hunger or stress. Maybe she's a stress eater. He's like, she needs some pears. <laughs> That's great. I love that little detail. So moving on from there, we've got our next great scene of going to Matt and Rand at at the inn. And as I mentioned in last episode, we have Basil Gill here in Tarvalon instead of in Camelin, where he's at in the books, which just kind of merges all that together. But Moraine had figured out that the boys were already in the city, so she was going to pay her a visit. Which is, it's got one of my favorite scenes in the entire episode. Well, two scenes kind of, it's the same scene, but two points in the same scene. And you guys probably know where I'm going with this, but they walk in, they exchange pleasantries, but Rand doesn't recognize Lan and Lan, like legitimately is just like, hey man, where's my hello? Yeah, I think he says something along the lines of like, it's good to see you too. It's so like... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but Rand is, at this point, he is afraid that it's Matt who is the dragon because he's got channeling sickness, obviously. And Moraine tries to approach him. Rand pulls the sword out and points it at Moraine. And I love how Lan just steps in front without getting a sword out and just goes, I don't think so, waggling his finger. He's like, don't be a fool. Don't be an idiot. Which that just goes to show how much of a badass Lan is by stepping in front of somebody with a sword without even getting a weapon out. He's like, I can take this kid down. No problem. And does so immediately. Like, proves himself correct. <laughs> and yeah, immediately does it. <laughs> Just pins him to the bed. Yeah, and completely disarms Rand. My my note here is that Rand definitely needs some sword training in season two. Because <laughs> uh, he's not going to last very long if he has to be in battles, if that's how good he can use a sword. I mean, to be fair, like, he is a sheep herder. Yeah. He is, indeed. Bless his heart, he tries. Give him a bow staff. 
give him the longbow, but we get to see some very weird stuff with the knife. So Moraine sees the knife and immediately knows that it was from Shadar Logoth because she calls Matt out. She's just like, you, you idiot child. Oh, you stupid boy. Yeah, you stupid boy. It's nice to hear someone express my feelings. The way that she channels the, uh, what's the best way to describe that? The darkness, the... The darkness inside Matt, I think, is the term that she uses. Yeah, she channels the corruption out of him in the weirdest way to me possible. Like, I don't understand why they showed it the way they did, I guess. It just seemed very, it seemed very odd. I like it. To me, it looks a little bit like the parasite from Venom, that it's like being extracted from one host and has now found this stronger host and so tries to go inside of her because it comes out of Matt's mouth and then tries to go into her mouth and like she keeps her mouth closed. I thought it was a very, very cool visual. I do like how it rides the weave. I can never remember which one's which. It's not Mosh and Chin. No, it's Mashadar. It's Mashadar. I mean, like it sort of mirrors the way Mashadar moves. I mean... It is Mashadar, and it's creepy, but it also looks like it goes into Moraine. It attaches to her mouth, but she never opens her mouth, so it doesn't go in, and then she stuffs it back into the dagger, drops it, Land picks it up, and we don't see it again for a while. I don't know. I think I'm with you, Thad, but it kind of was a weird way of expressing or visualizing how it, it, it tries to attack someone else. It was just a little odd. Because she didn't touch the knife, so it technically shouldn't have gone to her. Yeah. That's the way I view it, because she's floating the knife in her palm, and she pulls it out, rides the weave up to her mouth, like covers her face mostly, then rides the weave off back into the dagger, and she just drops the dagger. And it was like, okay, all right, sure. Visually, it looks cool, but I don't think it worked. I don't remember how they separated him from the dagger in the books, because it took more than one eye to die. Oh, it took like six of them. Yeah, I think it's almost a full circle. And it takes forever. Yeah, and it's like a full day of channeling. This is one of my my spoilery notes is like, is he fully healed? My gut says no, considering a scene that we see later on. So that is also what my gut says. (laughs) Yep. We'll get there when we get there, though. So after that scene, we have Rand talking with Moraine out on the veranda. And it was kind of like, uh, hey, good to see you again. Thanks for your help. I do like that scene. I like any scene that's somewhat soft between Rand and Moiraine, just because I really like their relationship in the books. And I like kind of an establishment of like a mother-son figure between the two of them. And he does like kind of tease her a little bit, which I thought was really cute. He's like, you could just say you're welcome. And she just sort of like looks at him like, okay, sure, I guess. It's just cute. So I guess after this, Moraine goes back to the tower and we get, how did you put it, Diana? Well, she goes to the bath first. She goes to the bath. Was the was the bath before or after the scene? Now I'm misremembering. Bath was before the scene. Ah, okay. She gets the signal from the, her spies before she goes to bath. No, because the signal is about Perrin and Egwene. Oh, you're right. Yeah. So the bath is, the bath is after Rant. Okay, and it's before Perrin. Okay. Yeah, it's before Perrin. The bath scene is great. Respectful female nudity. Like, great. Love to see it. And this scene is also doing a lot of foreshadowing work for stuff that's going to happen in episodes eight and presumably stuff that's going to happen in season two as well with the ships vanishing off the coast and Megan also being like, you need to stay in the tower now. Like this, this scene is a very quiet scene that is that is quietly doing like a lot of plot lifting which I really, really liked. 
What else did she mention outside of the ships disappearing off the West Coast? I think she mentioned two or three things. It's Aiel have been spotted the sign of the spine. Ships have been disappearing off the West and Trollocs have attacked the two rivers were the three things. Right. So that sets us up for possibly the ransacking of Tyr. She also knows that Moiraine sank the Terran Ferry. It's another thing that she mentions. Yeah, you're right. It does set up a lot of foreshadowing, especially the whole ship thing. How did they know if Master Hightower went down with that ferry? How did they know that the Aes Sedai sank it? If you remember, he had some family that was coming. But they weren't there. They weren't there, but if they came back and found his body... They wouldn't have known the Trollocs didn't do it. Her information network has improved is the only note that we get. <laughs> yeah. Are, are you saying that you doubt the Blue Eyes and Ears network? I think that was an overshoot <laughs> <laughs> Don't the Blues also, you know what, I could be totally misremembering something. I thought they also get some of their information network from animals, but now I'm thinking that I'm equating two separate things. I think you're thinking of the pigeons they use as messengers. I definitely am. Yes, you're correct. But the pigeons themselves are not the spies. That is very true. <laughs> I was like, you know, maybe a little rodent don't help. They're not ravens after all. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> then after this, we get uh, the brilliant, brilliant lead into Moirin and Swan with Moirin and Lan where she's, like, getting undressed and ready to go. Um, she looks so cute in the scene. Rosamund Pike does this, like, innocent little blink at one point. Oh, it's adorable. She's clearly just, like, so excited to go see her girlfriend. It makes me so happy. And Lan is, like, the best wingman. He's like, I will stand guard. He's a little bit butthurt that she blocked the bond. But honestly, I think Warren was doing him a favor. <laughs> Is this a TV exclusive thing? I don't ever remember the Bond getting masked specifically in the books. There's definitely Bond masking in the books. I'm like, I, I really cannot remember off the top of my head. Rand does it. Rand definitely masks some of his Bonds. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that it happens, although I couldn't tell you when. And other than Rand, I don't know anybody who does, but I remember Rand specifically. Is it, is it one of those things of Rand just happened to remember a weave that nobody else remembers? No, I, I always thought that it was just sort of like a mental thing. Like you just sort of like mentally put a wall up between you and the bond. I don't know. I don't know if that's explicit. That's something I'm going to have to research after this episode. But yeah, so she masks the bond. She's getting undressed or like basically ready to go. And Lana's like, be back by sunrise. And she's like, is that a command? <laughs> and he's very sassy with her. We get more sassy. It wasn't a suggestion. <laughs> so sassy. And then she makes... A gateway? Or this Terangriol creates a gateway? I, I, I think everybody's still pretty speculative on that, aren't we? We're still not quite sure what it is. It's another question that I have. I'm kind of wondering if it's a dream Terangriol. This definitely seems like a real world thing. If this is a dream, I will not be very happy with how they have done the dream world. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. It's really confusing. It's not clear. I think someone has asked Rafe about it at one point, and I think he confirmed, no, this is a real thing. This is a real place. This is not the dream world. I could be incorrect about that, but I'm pretty sure that someone asked him and he was like, no, this is not Teller on reality. But yeah, they go to the their love shack. Quite literally. Quite literally. <laughs> their fish shack. Yes. Where Swan is dutifully doing her knots, just like her dad told her to. And Lyraine is a brat. <laughs> just 
tearing up calling her mother and grinning that she's irritated swan and <laughs> I, I loved it when she was like i hate it when you call me that oh so good and then they get together and then you see the dynamic shift between like two lovers in public who have like an unequal power dynamic and then in the bedroom it's swap and maureen just orders her on her knees which was ad-libbed oh was that yeah that's pretty good that's pretty good it makes me wonder about rosamund pike she loves that line because she used it at nycc in her like intro Ugh. which just yes (laughs) it makes me wonder if she has experience don't get my mind going like that. <laughs> I'm just going to be thinking about that for the rest of the night. Respectfully, of course. Yes, respectfully. Of course. Of course. And then we fade to black and they start talking about the dragon and their quest for the dragon. I love how they how Moraine waits until the morning after, basically, and then goes, oh, by the way, I, I think I found the dragon. Look, priorities, okay? Swan just looks incredulously at her about that. Like, why wouldn't you tell me that first? Well, because... Priorities. It has been two years on the road. (laughs) Although I do wonder if they could meet each other in this whatever it is. Might have been two years since they've seen each other. I think they need the Terangriol. Yeah, my impression was that, at least on Maureen's side, she needed that picture frame or whatever it is in her room. And she can't just do this willy-nilly there's a matching one in swan's room later you can't just carry it with her. <laughs> <laughs> just carry this giant picture frame with her. <laughs> maybe it's maybe it's uh something to, you know how the tower in in and of itself is a very kind of mystical object because well you know the, the tower starts rearranging itself i think that was a bubble was that a bubble mm-hmm. it's a bubble it's a bubble of evil yeah i thought so okay that that tracks that tracks the tower is not Hogwarts. The tower <laughs> stairs don't just like rearrange themselves. I think the Ogier would have had an idea, right? Because they built it. Yeah, I, I got the sense that she needs the Terangriol and the Terangriol needs to be on a wall. Why not just put it on a tree? Yeah, presumably <laughs> she's been in an inn where she could hang it, but... Right. It would be awkward to carry a picture frame around on a horse. I, I have a feeling that this is going to be one of those things of when it gets revealed what it is. It's kind of like a one-liner that they pulled out of a book or out of the, you know, somewhere that someone mentioned one time in passing. And they've used that like they did with the whole parent's wife thing. It just feels like it is so deep cut because it has everybody still guessing on it. Nobody has concrete information on it. So that just goes to show that there's so much to these books that someone said one thing somewhere in these 15 books and they took that potentially. One throwaway line and you get a dead wife. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's I, I have a feeling it's just something like that. Like, oh, it was a Tarangriol in a storeroom that, oh gosh, what, what what's her name? Something Corindiel who studied all of the Tarangriol 100 years ago. She probably had a half note on this that one of the Brown sisters probably found. And they're using that Tarangriel or something like that. It's something. It's it's something. And we probably shouldn't spend too much more time trying to figure out what exactly it is. So There's a lot of interesting parts of this conversation where they talk about the dragon and the prophecies. And that like the dragon's soul could have been split into five bodies, which clearly was not. Or that the dragon could be a woman or like like all of these like different things and that there are different places in the world that have different 
versions of the prophecies, which I like. I like that line because that makes sense. I liked the multi-soul theory because I think it has happened before to where when the Dalai Lama has gotten reborn, they thought that he got split into like more than one person. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I think I've talked about this before that my show Only Friends, at one point their theory was that the dragon was in all five of them. And I was like, that's insane. That is not how reincarnation works in this world. And then and then they brought it up in this episode and I was like, okay, maybe I don't know as much as I think I do. <laughs> I, I do wish they had talked a little bit more concretely about the prophecies in this and like specifically the prophecy that they hear from Guitara. Um but that's okay. It is interesting that Swan brings up that she keeps seeing the Dark One at the Eye of the World and that he's weak. I am very curious if this is a fake dream that is being given to her by a Shamael. I'm absolutely sure it is. Well, I said I unconsciously shield their dreams. So it's probably not that. I thought they consciously shield them. Shield them. It's kind of a, you have to learn how to do it first and then it's unconscious using a spirit weave to shield your dreams. Do they all do that? That's a good question, too, because it is specifically brought up in the book that once you learn how to do it, you just kind of unconsciously do it after that. Yeah, I thought it was something that Egwene learned from the wise ones. Was that what it was? Yeah, I think it's the wise ones shield their dreams. Yeah, because I said I don't know anything about the world of dreams. I'm just getting a lot of stuff wrong this episode. <laughs> no, it's all good. Boom, baby. <laughs> there's a lot of these books. If that if that should show you anything right there, there's a lot of these books. So Yeah. I, I could totally see Aes Sedai shielding their dreams, but Ishamayel being able to get past that because he's stronger. And he is, like, in particular, the father of lies. And we've seen him manipulate the boys, like, all of their dreams before. So at first I was like, why is Swan seeing the Dark One at the Eye of the World? That's so weird. And then I was like, oh, it's obviously like a fake dream that Ishamayel is giving her to try and like tempt her there. Baiting him. Yeah. Yeah. Totally works. Works 100%. Yeah. I'm 100% sure you're right about that. I mean, and to be fair, it works. It did. And I can't remember because it's been a while since I watched it. I feel like somehow that came up later in episode eight, but maybe it was just a connection I made at that point. It was like something he, his, there was a look in his eye, like, I gotcha. It could have been in his conversation with Moiraine that he has. Moving on from that, we do have in our next scene, Moraine had mentioned that she found basically the strongest channeler in a thousand years. So then our next scene is our, our strongest channeler in a thousand years and Egwene meeting Swan. Leading up to them meeting Swan, it's Nynaeve and Egwene get reunited in the hall for the first time since they had been separated too. That's important to bring up. It is important, yeah, because Egwene thought Nynaeve was dead up until that point. And Nynaeve says, so did the Trolloc. <laughs> yeah, so did the Trolloc that took me. <laughs> So good. This also is one of my other favorite Moiraine lines. There's so many good ones in this episode. Swan Sanche waits for one woman and it's not you. <laughs> it's like, gives us a lot of insight into their sex life. <laughs> so good. Also, the way she's like strutting around like this morning after I'm like, yes, Moiraine, you're feeling yourself and I am proud of you. <laughs> I love those shoulder pads that she has yes. on her blue, out blue outfit. Her non-traveling outfit is so pretty. I love it. 
So yeah, they go off to meet and, and I love it because Nynaeve is just immediately aggressive to Swan, just immediately. Like I'm not having any of this. In fact, she even says, all right, you've done enough blowing smoke up our ass. What do you want? It reminds me of the way like two female cats, like when they meet each other, they're immediately like hiss and spit and I'm the queen of this pack, you know, that's what it felt like. It's understandable because Nynaeve has this history with the Aes Sedai thanks to her mentor or thinks she has this history. So her unhappiness at being there and the whole situation is it makes sense that she'd be a little prickly. A little prickly. <laughs> That's like saying a cat is a little prickly. <laughs> I do like my understatement. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> and then you get a queen who just wants to be, I, I believe Diane's phrase is the pick me girl. And, and she's just so, so ready to be like the best I said I she can. And then she learns that Nynaeve's even more powerful than her. And she's like, oh, it's it's the funniest moment there's a great other pick me girl moment that i only caught this time around before when moiraine is meeting Egwene and perrin the yellow sisters where perrin is getting healed when Egwene hands her back the rings she like very fiercely is like emmanvalda won't hurt any more of your sisters and is like look at me i'm so powerful and moiraine just gives her this look and then she like shrinks immediately (laughs) it's really cute She's like, look at me, I'm so fierce. Oh, wait, right. Okay, I'm just a child and you are like very much an adult. (laughs) It's great. It's a pretty good one. Yeah, like you just handed me the rings of my dead sisters and you want me to be proud of that. Validation. She was seeking validation and she didn't get it. She's seeking validation. And that was more of a a moment of you're you're handing me proof that my sisters are dead. Like I'm not going to immediately validate your... Ego. She does get her validation from Swan in the end, though. Equine just has a little bit of growing up to do. She'll get there. She will. A little bit. There's that understatement again. <laughs> <laughs> there will be much growth in future seasons. <laughs> right, right. Much growth. We will not always be happy to see it. So um, how much do you think Nynaeve called Swan Swan since she gave her permission for that day? To call her swan. All the time. I would imagine for the rest of Nynaeve's yes. life. <laughs> yep. Oh gosh, yes. Because uh, well, I'm not going to say that. No, I was going to say something that's not entirely, I'm not even entirely sure it's going to be true because it hasn't happened yet. Very easy to tread into spoilery sections when talking about this stuff, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't we just move on from there and go to the next scene? And that is the saddest scene of the episode, right? Maybe not for Leandrin, but everybody else. Very sad. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> that would be Moraine's exile from the tower because as we learned as we learned earlier in the episode she requests that it happen because they got a scheme because the head of the blue wants to keep Moraine in the tower so Moraine's like this can't happen right before that there is a scene where she meets with Loyal which is important because that's how she knows about the way gates and I think there is supposed to be an extra scene in here where she and Loyal are specifically looking at the map which I wish they had kept. <laughs> like, I think that they're supposed to look at the map of the Waygates, and I really wish they had kept that. Yeah, there was a production picture of that in the x-ray for the episode. I, yeah, I wish it was in. Like, it's so important to, like, establish what the Ogier know about the Waygates, and what does Moiraine learn from Loyal about the Waygates? Like, it's one of those scenes where it's like, this isn't just, like, a nice-to-have. This is, like, actually doing work. Please include it. 
Also, I, I love that when Moraine walks in, glory to the builders. And I'm like, yes, yes. Glory to the builders. <laughs> but she sounds so harried. She's like trying to be polite. But she's also like, I'm in a hurry. Like, let's move it along. So hasty. Yeah, it's so great. But yes, her exile. It's very notable that she does not swear to the Amarlin seat. I have to wonder, doesn't anyone else like wonder about that? They have to. Yeah, like, why is Moraine swearing directly to Swan when everyone knows that they're, like, sworn enemies? It's so strange. I mean, I'm sure they did, but they weren't going to say it out loud. Yeah, that's kind of what I think. I just, I wonder if that's going to be explored at all. Because surely it gives someone somewhere some hint that, like, maybe they're not, you know, maybe maybe they're scheming together. Also, like, that scene is low-key a wedding <laughs> it is low-key a wedding absolutely a wedding <laughs> right we see moraine crying because you know she's getting exiled but at the same time when they keep cutting the camera back to swan you see her tearing up as well so it's like how are the members of the hall taking this are they seeing this unfold and be like oh she's swearing to swan sanche and swan is crying is what's going on here yeah because like the reds sit immediately to the Omerlins left i think so like the red sitters are close enough to see all of this emotional shenanigans going on like yeah i i also am always like i do feel like you guys have blown your cover but maybe at that point they figure they're so close they found the dragon like they're so close to to getting him to the eye of the world like they kind of don't care but I, I agree. Another one of my questions is like, how is this going? This is going to have repercussions. What are the repercussions going to be? They do a great job, though, of really hammering in the point of exile once all the sisters in the hall start turning around. Yeah. And then you see Alana like that last. Alana looks so upset. And then everybody immediately outside the doors when they open also know to turn around. Like word gets out pretty fast, apparently. I'm sure they could hear. That's true. Well, I was assuming that the people outside could see in the hall that everyone was turned. And so they know that they themselves have to turn. Oh, that's, you know what? That's a very astute observation that I did not even consider. <laughs> yeah. And they know what that means. Yeah. I, it's also not like those walls are not exactly soundproof. I think it's masoned marble. So, yeah. I mean, it, it, it might be, a, but not for Isentine. <laughs> <laughs> true. Very true. You would think that they would have some kind of anti-eavesdropping wards up, though. Right? Yeah. They don't even have railings in the hall. Who needs railings, though? Like, oh my god. Like, the, the hall is beautiful, but that pan up, like, those hallways make me so nervous. There's no railings above them. Well, I mean, the hall or the the, the White Tower itself is, what, over 3,000 years old? So OSHA standards have changed <laughs> since the days it was built. There's no ADA requirements. <laughs> no OSHA. No, Osha. <laughs> I love that out of everybody that was turning around, like Leandrin was one of the last people to turn outside of Alana because everybody else turned around. And you, you know, I like to think that Leandrin was just smugly just looking at Moraine, just being like, that's right. That's right. Just soaking it in. Leandrin was enjoying her win. Yeah. Yeah. And then Alana's just like, I'm sorry. Alana looks so upset. She really does. I know. She didn't want to, but she had to. And then she rides out with Lan to the wave gate, and there's all the kids. And Rand and Matt see Nine for the first time, and they're like, oh my god, you're alive. No, wait, they knew she was alive. It was a queen, and 
Perrin that they hadn't seen. Mm-hmm. I think Perrin at that point is the only one who doesn't know. Yeah, had that backwards. Wrong group. They already knew, and Perrin hadn't known. And then for some reason, and it, this is what's weird, when they cut out the scene with the map, they gave Royal nothing to do to open the way gate. So he just like, we need you, but then we don't use you. When they need him, well, remember, they need him to read the guide stones inside the ways and stuff like that. But That's the next episode, but they don't even show that, do they? They show it a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. But specifically, they knew that they were going to need an Ogier to make their way through. But yeah, I, I, I do kind of wish we still had gotten a scene with them looking over the map and stuff. And I still don't know how I feel about how the way gate itself opens. It's so hammered in the books that it's the Avendasaur leaf, which they do show pictures of, like, you know, maybe not for this episode, but for another episode, they so show someone holding the key for it, which is also way smaller than I was expecting. I'm going to save my Waygate thoughts for when we talk about episode seven, because there are things about how they have the Waygate operate in the show that actually do not make sense. And yeah, I agree with you guys. That extra scene with Leal, if he had been like, there is a key, it's a it's a leaf or you can channel, but don't channel inside. And so like, look for the leaf inside or something like some little extra explanation would have really gone a long way. But I will save my the way gate in the show makes no sense rant for when we do more with it. I do love how they had the entire party meet up at the Waygate, them not knowing what the Waygate is. And then we kind of get the spiel of, hey, we got to go to the eye of the world and do our deed. And we have to go through these nasty, nasty ways using loyal. And uh, everyone's just like, uh, what? Matt even says, is it too late to change my mind? Which apparently not. Apparently not, Matt. You can change your mind at any time. Yeah. <laughs> that line would have been funny if they hadn't had to change it. Because everybody goes through the way gate. And they stand on the other side and awkwardly scream, Matt, Matt, Matt. Well, he just stands there not looking at them. I have a feeling they re like they took the Matt shots and then they just reshot like that end. I have a feeling they did that when they came back from the COVID break. Yeah, they only reshot the the people that stayed. Like Matt was recycled. That was what made it so weird. Yeah, it is very weird. Like, he's just not reacting, and it's like, okay. He's not reacting. He's not even looking at them. He's just sort of looking off into the distance, and then they're all screaming. Like, they can't just reopen the gate two seconds after it closes. It's weird. Well, see if we would have had that extra context of you can't channel inside the ways, that would have held a little bit more weight to, you know, that scene, but we don't get that. Yeah, like, there was some reason we knew that they wouldn't be able to reopen the gate. And then it, it also could have been that there's no leaf on that gate. Look, leaf is gone. They can't open it. That's why she channeled. And you can't channel inside the ways. And now we have context for why this scene is so awkward. <laughs> yeah, like, if there wasn't a leaf on that gate because it had been lost to time, because that gate is out in the middle of nowhere, like, that would have been really helpful context. Oh, we, see, they just need us in the writer's room. They do. They they need us to be like, this doesn't make sense. <laughs> it makes no sense. You need to rewrite it. Give us like an extra line. It will cost you a second. You could just give, you know, you show a little bit more of the conversation with Royal and Moraine. And then, you know. I need a deleted scenes. Yeah. So say that we had gotten that like extra scene. What would you have cut then? Because presumably something would have had to be cut in order to make space for that. You could just cut five seconds of them yelling Matt. (laughs) (laughs) It 
this is also the episode where Leandrin weirdly hits on White Rain. And I probably, that's a fun scene because, wow, is that a crack ship for me now? But I probably would have cut that. I probably would have like either just fully cut that scene because we don't really need it. Yeah, I probably would have cut that scene. You probably could have shaved a few seconds off of the, the march through the hall with them turning their backs. Like not necessarily cut any of it, but it's kind of slow. They could have made a, a couple of cuts and shaved some seconds off of it. May have ta- make it less impactful, but it wouldn't have made the end so weird. Or we even just like cut the beginning of Moiraine and Loyal meeting. Yeah. We don't necessarily need that. Or we cut a Leandrin and Moiraine confronting each other later, where Leandrin confronts her about all of the Two Rivers kids. Like, there's there's a bunch of, like, stuff in this episode that's good, that's great, I love it. But if I, like, in order to have a scene that actually does work, like, I would, I would shave off some other stuff that's just sort of, like, fluffy and fun. You could have shaved a minute somewhere. That pretty much wraps the episode, though, because, you know, we got our, our weird closing scene with Matt in our last scene with Matt in the series after this episode. At this point in the episode, we will be discussing potential spoilers for all books in the series. If you haven't finished reading and don't wish to be spoiled, we suggest that you stop listening now. You can join us next week when we discuss episode 7. We'll see you then. Was there any spoiler stuff in the episode that we wanted to expound upon? There's a lot of spoiler stuff going on here in this episode. Well, let's talk about a couple then. Specifically, one of the lines that also I have a question about is whoever comes between the dragon and the dark one will die is, I think, a very interesting thing that they believe that I don't think is in any of the dragon prophecies that we get from the books. No, it's I, I, I feel like it's another one of those they're operating on misinformation or misinterpretation of it. Or is it foreshadowing to the last battle and Moradin's death? Because Moradin does come between Rand and the Dark One, technically, and he does die. True, true. I, I'm also like, unreliable narrator or extreme foreshadowing? Maybe we shall never know. <laughs> I feel like it's probably a little bit of both because it's been a thousand years. 3,000. I think it was more of setting it up to be more dangerous for everybody else that goes with him. Right, because, you know, a specific thing that happens in episode 8 ends the season on a cliffhanger that we're going to explore in season 2. And that could be the whole getting in between that they were talking about. But she doesn't get in between Rand and the Dark One. She gets in between Rand and Ishamael. Stakes are significantly lower. Well, they think Ishamael is the Dark One. They think he's the Dark One at that point, and he's led them to believe that. Yeah, yeah. So I just, I think it's interesting. Also, Egwene, Egwene, seeing the Amerlin seat, looking at it, <laughs> her future Amerlin. Did she ever actually get to sit in it in the books? Yes, very briefly after the Sean Chan attack. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not very long. Not very long. I think, like, literally a matter of weeks. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Not gonna cry. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the other one we could probably talk about is the foreshadowing done in the bath scene with the ships disappearing off the West Coast. Because as we see at the end of the season, our fabled antagonists start to show up. Yes. So Megan has been cast for season two. That same actress is coming back as Megan. She is definitely going to be collared in season two. I think there is like zero doubt in anybody's mind that that is exactly what is going to happen to her, sadly. Did she get collared in the books? I don't think so. I don't think she's one of the ones. 
Is she the head of the Blue Ajah? Yes. So that's going to be tough for them. There was something, I mentioned it earlier, and I should have, maybe I should have made a note of it. I said I was going to talk about my thoughts about it because I was about to say something spoilery and now I don't remember what it was. Oh, I was going to talk about Nynaeve. I was going to say that possibly the last time she sees Swan is the Emerald Seat. Depending on how they play things out, she may never come back to the tower before Swan is not. So, mm, yeah, probably. Yeah. Uh, no, because so we know Nynaeve goes to the tower in season two because we see her training with the warders there. And Swan is definitely still Omerlin in season two because we've seen her in her Omerlin gear in the teaser. But she may not be in the tower. And so she may not see her. Yeah. It did look like she was traveling somewhere. There's a possibility she won't ever call her Amelyn because she won't see her again until she's no longer Amelyn, which is hilarious to me. <laughs> it's funny. I wonder if Swan's going to be present for Nynaeve's accepted test, which we'll get in season two. I don't know. She wasn't in the books because it was Shiriam that was there with just a bunch of unnamed. I think there was probably a name sister, but a majority of them were unnamed. Didn't they put her through it almost immediately? Yes. I think the only other question I have in this episode is I actually do not like that they have the oath rod in this episode and that Moiraine swears on it at all. It's such a big deal that people are made to swear to the Omerlin on the oath rod later in the book series. And considering the number of like really like minute things about tower customs that they get correct, it's so weird to me that they were like, this is the one that we are just going to totally ignore. And like, I know it's probably inconsequential for like the larger plot of the show, but it just kind of really bothered me. And like the Oathrod looks great. They did a great job with it. It looks super cool. I didn't need to see it this season. We could have saved it. And really, as much as I love that scene, it bothers me. You don't think it's a sign of the severity of what Swan and Maureen are doing? Or what Swan is telling Moraine to do? No, because you don't need the oath rod. If you swear, because you have already sworn the three oaths, you cannot lie. And so when you swear to somebody, having sworn the three oaths, then that is binding without the additional need for the oath rod. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, in the TV show, have they even mentioned that the oath rod is required for full sisters? They talk about the oaths. They talk about the oaths, and we then we see... The Oath Rod. So, you know, if you're paying attention, you can make the connection. Did they actually call it the Oath Rod? They called it the Oath Rod. Okay. I couldn't remember. But yeah, yeah. Like in, in episode four, they, they, they do talk about taking the oaths. Moraine probably says something like that to Egwene even earlier, but never that there is an Oath Rod that they swear on when they're made full sisters, like it is in the books. So... Oh, yeah, she made Egwene learn all three of those, exactly how they're spoken in episode two. And then it was repeated again later with Balda, not precisely, but the fact that they are sworn and bowed by the oath to never tell a lie. I don't know, though. So I don't think that saying I swear to not come back means that you will never go back. It means that you think in that moment that you won't. But I think there would be ways of getting around it. Oh, yeah, they skirt the truth all the time, so she'll figure a way around it easily. Yeah, well, but specifically to Diana's point about not needing to swear on the oath rod, like if she hadn't sworn on the oath rod, I think just saying I swear to not come back is plenty of ways to get around that. I think she still can get around it, but I think it will be a little more difficult. 
No, because at that point, if you say, I believe the wording of the oath was, I swear to not return until called back by the Omerlin seat or something like that. Swan Sanche. Well, that's what Moiraine says. But what, what, what Swan initially asks her to swear. If you say that, you're not like, oh, I think, I think I'll follow this now, but in the future I won't. Like you, that's, that's, you've sworn that. You've sworn you will not come back until you are called. And your body will be compelled to follow that oath because of the three oaths already. It's the same way that like when they're trying to get the women to say, what was it? The people that were hunting the dark friends were like trying to get one of the Aes Sedai to say something. And she truly believed that it was true and could not force herself to say it because she did not believe it was true. Like if I swore this, it doesn't matter if I believe I won't in the future, I might change my mind. That oath, like by saying that, she has now physically bound herself to always abiding by that. Because at that point, it would have broken the truth she had sworn to tell. Well, if we want to get into the semantics of it, you could always go to the scene where when Egwene is collared and she picks up the vase to use it as a weapon against her captor, and she couldn't touch a vase for a couple of days until she could mentally disconnect the vase from or the pitcher from being a weapon to being a pitcher. Yeah, the collar operates on very much the same principles that the Othrod operates under. So, and like, there are just, there are like, probably plots that will at least somewhat get cut, but there are multiple plots in the later book series that are dependent on people swearing on the Othrod and how the Othrod is used and whether or not people can even swear to the Omerlin that I was like, ah, this feels so incorrect. It was like probably the only time before episode eight that I was like, oh my God, this is so wrong. This is like actually really wrong. And I don't know how this made it into the show. I wonder if it has something to do with what they plan to do. Like they're going to have to cut a lot of that. So in order to shorten it, they had to show it earlier so that it's already established what they can and cannot do with the Othrod. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see. Maybe they will justify it. But for the moment, I'm like, I don't like it. Thank you very much for listening to our discussion of Amazon's Wheel of Time Season 1, Episode 6. If you have any questions or topics you'd like us to talk about, feel free to send us an email to producertvt at gmail.com or you can join us on tarvalon.net. In our general forums, we have a special thread called Tarvalon Talks pinned at the top of the page. You can also chat with us on tarvalon.net's Discord server and the Tarvalon Talks Discord channel. See you next time!